Welcome, witches and ghouls. We are pleased to say that we are a part of the Morbidly Beautiful podcast network and family. Morbidly Beautiful is your macabre home away from home with horror news, reviews, editorials, and more. Morbidly Beautiful supports everyone in the horror community, from special effects artists, indie filmmakers, writers, women, LGBTQ folks, and so much more. And we are always so happy to be part of the spooky team. Please go to morbidlybeautiful.com to find out more. And now, on with the show. I spin on your podcast, a monthly horror podcast brought to you by the Spencers of Horror. This is a time once a month where Jess puts down her bloody nitty needles and I step away from the TV to discuss horror movies and sometimes other horror mediums with thoughtful analysis, research, and passion. In this episode, we are returning to our Origins of Horror series with a look at the history of horror and its development through the decades. Last time, we discussed what was happening in the world and in the horror genre in the 1920s and the 1930s. This time, we're going to talk about what's happening in the world and the horror genre in the 1940s and 50s. And as we know, like as we've done a little bit of research on this, in the 40s, known as the Lost Years of Horror, this is when creators were really fighting against the Hayes Code and growing up alongside film noir. While in the 1950s, the horror genre exploded due to the Cold War, technological advancements that came out of it, and people's fears and anxiety about that. The films that we are going to be discussing today are The Picture of Dorian Gray from 1945, Cat People from 1942, The Creature from the Black Lagoon from 1954, Evasion of the Body Snatchers from 1956, and Gojira from 1954. We will also be giving a brief mention of any of the other films that we watched this month. So pick your poison and listen on if you dare. Okay, so like the 1920s and 30s, there still were a lot of movies I had not seen. There are there's still so many that I didn't get a chance to to watch this month, even some that are considered classics. But there are some I was able to see for the first time. Some of them we'll be talking about today. Anyways, yes, what's your what's your story with 1940s and 50s films? I know that, you know, your origins of horror for yourself were old black and white films so it's funny because like when I first dived in to like figure out different films from the 1940s (laughs) and 50s that I hadn't seen yet I actually realized that this was kind of a bit of a blind spot for me Um, I tend to have watched more films from the 20s and 30s and then kind of skipped the 40s and the 50s I was never really a big feature creature feature person Um, it took a while Mm -hmm. to get to like that and so I like I feel like I dropped a big gap for me in these eras and then I jumped to 60s and 70s so that's a lot of new stuff for me as well cool yeah I would agree. I feel like the 50s, I mean, I love sci-fi horror but and creature features, and I love the design of all of those weird and wacky puppets and stuff and, you know, how they created all those movies. But I haven't really, like, sat down and explored the 50s very much. One day I will do more. But, you know, it uh, it was still really great to, to come back to earlier decades of horror and kind of see where everything was at. 
So what, what are your likes and dislikes generally about the 40s and 50s? So if I want to start with the 40s, mm-hmm. you can definitely tell that one of, my, one of my likes are that it grew up alongside film noir, which is I actually realized I have to I tend to like film noir films from the 1940s. Mm-hmm. So here's mm-hmm. when it comes to horror in the 1940s, I don't watch a lot, but I've actually mm-hmm. seen a lot of like film noir films from the 40s that I really enjoy. Mm-hmm. So I really enjoyed that aspect of it. But what I mm-hmm. didn't really like was that you could tell that they were replaying a lot of the same tropes over and over and over. Like, mm-hmm. there was one film that I watched called Bluebeard from 1942, and I'm like, this is literally Dracula. <laughs> like, this, the story <laughs> is literally Dracula, but okay. Yeah. Like, you know, yeah. so it just felt like a lot of rehashing of ideas, and you can just tell that they're just trying to yeah. find something to hook people in. And, and unless you enjoyed film noir, I feel like that's where you're going to find it. And so films yeah. that, horror films, I noticed that cross the film noir is where I end up liking that. Um, how about you? Great. Anything about the... 40s that you liked and disliked? I would agree with you on the film noir aspect. Um, I mean, for me, I'm always, I always enjoy my visit to classic horror films and old black and white films. I mean, those run times are fantastic. <laughs> I appreciate a 70 to 75 minute runtime. The abrupt endings are just like, oh, oh, it's over. Like they don't like yeah. spend time like drawing out like a 20 minute conclusion. It's just like, oh, that was wrapped up in five minutes and then it's over. And it's, I don't know, that just is charming to me. I find that funny. I still find so much like classiness in these classic yeah. white, black and white films. There's just something about it. Again, the aesthetics of them. I I often really, really love, uh, I think the acting can be really, really fantastic. So I, yeah. I enjoy that. They can have really great stories. And again, like the aesthetic spooky atmosphere I'm I'm into. Stuff that I dislike, particularly especially when you talk about the 40s, but there's there's a lot of let's say content, but it's hard to find good yeah. movies. And it's I love the internet for making like the best of the 1940s, the best of the 1950s list, because you can kind of go to that and I guess trust these people's uh, recommendations. Folks, you can trust our opinions and, and recommendations that you'll get by the end of this episode, but there's just a lot. So sometimes it can be overwhelming to sit down and be like, what do I watch from this decade? Yeah. And like I said, and a lot of the films are very similar. Um, I do like something about the 1940s films is that there is uh, no foreplay. They get into it right away. Like usually whatever is happening happens right away. And then you're 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 dealing with the story after that. Where Are you talking I'm, about a story, not actual sexual activities? Yes, I'm talking about the story, yeah. Okay. I, was, I was using a sexual... is fucking lightning fast. Exactly. Yes, yep. exactly, yeah. Yep. Whereas later on, we know in the 50s, and I mean, we're going to start having these long, drawn-out, like, you know, scenes yeah. happening until they finally something happens about, like, the quarter of the way through the film, so... Fair. So what about the 50s? Is there anything... What did you like and dislike about the 50s films? Those are my generalized likes and dislikes for the oh, okay. 40s and 50s, actually. Okay, yeah. I, so I was guess for myself, I was just going to say, like, for the 50s, I love the creatures, and I, I sympathize with all of them. I think they're interesting. Mm-hmm. They're stories that come out. They are, you know, a lot of the same stories hashed out because a lot of the same fears. Yeah. One of the things I recognize watching the, the couple of the films that I watched from the 50s and then looking up other films that I may, I'm going to potentially watch is that they are all very white 
and it's very uncomfortable mm-hmm. to watch. And mm-hmm. doing the research that we did on, on the particular two films that we chose for the film, it was really interesting to see why that was happening, why like, we, we know that there was prominently only white characters throughout all these films, but watching them now, it makes you feel very uncomfortable. And then you can like be, and you can see why we would sympathize with the creatures now, the villains mm-hmm. of the films, because of just how they're treated throughout it. And you're like, oh, this mm-hmm. is representative of uh, a white supremacy. This is really uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Sure, yeah. You can read a lot of different things, uh, concepts and themes through through those movies. But I mean, I'm not surprised. I mean, I'm not surprised that you're uncomfortable by the whiteness of horror and cinema during that time. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, we still struggle with that. And it's 2022. So absolutely. Terrible product of its time. All right. So you're going to kick us off with the 1940s Lost Years of Horror. Yeah, so to uh, set the stage for what's happening in the world at the time, um, not just the horror genre, and what we know like from the 1940s is World War II. One of the biggest World War events. Two. <laughs> world War Two. One of the biggest events that happened. Yep. You know, 1940 yep. to 1945. The whole world is caught up in this one giant war. We've got the Holocaust. We got the dropping of the A bomb that happens on Japan and Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Mm-hmm. And then from there, you get the creation of the United Nations, NATO, allies, countries coming together to essentially recognize each other as potential enemies and how you need to have allies. But then you also have countries like India, Vietnam, Pakistan fighting for their independence, fighting against colonized and getting these colonizers out of out. Um, we also get the beginning of the Cold War. After 1945, uh, the Russians and the Americans did not trust nor like one another. And they had very different stylistics when it comes to diplomacy. And, and the interesting thing about World War II didn't stop horror. Horror kept being made. Audiences were very comfortable with monster movies. And we talked all about 20s and 30s. Like the 30s was tons of that was the birth of our universal monsters, right? So we're super comfortable with monsters now. We don't need them to be sympathetic. We're just going to have fun at the movies. Reality was way fucking scarier for people. So you would think, oh, World War Two, like we're going to see, you know, horror take a hit because of the war. But it does not. It carries on. But what was a hindrance to horror in the 1930s, because there was like a couple of years gap where there wasn't really a lot of horror movies made. If you go back and like look a year by year to year, sorry, uh, like, for instance, 1936 and 1938, we kind of touched on the Hayes Code uh, in our last episode on this because it was created. It was a thing that existed, but it wasn't relatively policed. Like it wasn't really a thing. It was there, but that changed in 1934. So now horror movies, sorry, production companies, filmmakers were required to obtain a certificate of approval prior to having their movies released. And folks in charge of the Hayes Code didn't particularly like horror movies. Yeah. So that was uh, Joseph Brin. He was the head of the newly created Production Code Administration that focused primarily on enforcing the Hayes Code. And Mm -hmm. like Kelly said, you needed to have a certificate of approval. And he had a lot of power for a good three decades because he was rigidly Catholic, 
very <laughs> serious minded and he saw horror as immoral and he mm-hmm. would do anything he would to discourage it. He also used this wonderful tactic that we all know about, thank you so much, Donald Trump, false news or misinformation <laughs> tactic, where he was going around telling people, um, a lot of uh, production companies in Hollywood, that the UK was banning horror movies, so don't produce them because you won't be able to sell them to anywhere. It's just a bad idea, right? So just producing all this false information and then films were getting caught in development hell, like people would have to put in scripts and they would constantly get revised it was just a huge process so it was very discouraging for creators to try and get anything out there there was even a rating and i thought this was funny and stupid but there was a rating h it was a rating of h for horrific wow <laughs> yeah yeah so you know that's horror right that's what we love about it. And the the other thing was that the code warned against things like depictions of, quote, brutality and possible gruesomeness. Again, horror. That is why we come to the theater to see horror. So you're stripping, like, the true essence and the inherent uh, darkness and the entertainment and everything that people want to go to see horror movies for. So that was really unfortunate. Yes, horror took a hit. But even with all of that, people still loved horror movies. They still wanted to go to the theater to see uh, horror movies. They had not turned its back on horror cinema. We, we, we are. They were ravenous for it. They were just like, they loved it. I mean, they got the glimpses of it and got to the, the good taste of it in the 1930s. So the 40s, they were clamoring for it. And like Jess said earlier, like you said, there was a lot of repetition, a lot. Of, I felt I feel like the 1940s, a, a good ab- adjective for it is that it was very uninspired. We've got the monsters, the mad scientists. We've got some like ha- haunted houses, spooky things like the house on Haunted Hill. Some not so great movies starring our aging 1930s horror icons like Bela Lugosi, Boris Karloff. And yes, we saw more like film noir, kind of like mm-hmm. horror adjacent, which is something we would call now, but things that are less horrific, less horror genre-ish and see more of like blending the film noir with some horrific elements, which I think you're right. That's where it kind of shines, 1940s. Yeah, because when you think of film noir, these films are more adult and they're more risque and they're more sexy. So mm-hmm. it is like taking the dark, scary yeah. mood of horror and combining it with film noir and you get these really incredible, impactful films that by the end of it, you're questioning your sexuality. So, oh. <laughs> <laughs> and that for 1940s is very, very risque. Um, we still had a few of our misunderstood monsters with the Wolfman, and then in the 50s we do have the creature from the Creature from the Black Lagoon. So we do have these snippets of interesting characters, interesting creatures are a little bit more of our universal monsters. The kind of the decline of them. And side note, we do have an actual episode on the Wolfman from the 1940s, so go check that out. But also 1940s was the birth of the horror comedy. That is true. Sadly, the Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, Abbott and Costello meet the killer, you know, those types of movies, they run into Dracula, I think. (laughs) Those are not actually really accessible. Unfortunately, so many of the movies from the the 40s and 50s aren't super accessible for for Canadians. I think there's like a bunch of really like extra low budget, not classics on Tubi, which I did add to my list. But, you know, eventually I will get to them. But... Yeah, the horror comedy. I wish I could have watched them, but that was the thing, which is great. I mean, I'm happy for that. 
But the 1940s, very commercialized horror. Not really all that interesting, not really all that scary. Another good way to put it, not that dangerous, right? Not very inspired. Take a look at this short list of movies released in the 40s. House of Dracula, The Mummy's Tomb, The Mummy's Curse, The Mummy's Hand, The Mummy's Ghost, etc., etc., etc. But there is... For me personally, a gleaming hope, a, a, a shining beacon of light and hope, not light. He dabbles in a lot of darkness. But Val Luton, during my research and watching of movies, this, his name came up a lot. And I wish more of his films were easily accessible mm. for us here in Canada because I would love to watch more of them, like The Seventh Victim. It's like I could rent it on YouTube for $15. Probably eventually I will. But yeah. Val Luton is a really, really interesting man. And I feel like it's the, the 40s is the decade of Val Luton. So the production company RKO was losing money, so brought Val Luton on as a producer for their horror department. And apparently he's been called a, a producer auteur due to his unique and interesting and aesthetic films. He plays with shadows. He plays with darkness. He has a very specific look to his movies. There's a lot of implication over mm-hmm. just showing things psychological horror is yes 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 kind of he started this trend of or at least some folks would say that he created the psychological horror movie and i watched a video essay on him as well so i was really really interested um but there's a lot of atmosphere and suggestion in the place of graphic horror as quote unquote as graphic as horror was at that time but you know he did have people of color in his films even again it's 1940s they were obviously in minor roles but there were no people of color stereotypes. He actually yeah. researched oh. cultures before go in history and before going into shooting. So that was really different for the time. Yeah. And he was, Val Luton is also set to do an adaptation of Carmilla, Bold, 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 which oh, would have wow. been rad, but didn't happen, unfortunately. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> but that would have been fantastic. Also Val Luton, the creator of the jump scare, folks. Also sometimes called the Luton bus. Jess, do you want to describe that scene? The scene in Cat People is as our um, one protagonist, Alice, is walking down a very dark um, street, tunnel, she's trees. It's She's alone. She's by herself. She's afraid. She knows that she's being followed. She senses it. And as she's walking, and then all of a sudden you think that when somebody's going to jump out and scare her, a bus it pulls up and opens the door and it's And like, it's like, yeah, it's a jump scare. I I don't know how more to describe it, but it's just like, it's not what you expected it to be. It was a bus. (laughs) Yep. Yep. Just a bus strolling up as buses do. So at the time, that was very shocking, very scary, very subversive. And Val Luton just seems like a really interesting man. And I'd love to do this, like a whole episode on his films. Again, if his films could become a little bit more accessible, I would really appreciate that. (laughs) <laughs> maybe, yeah, maybe sometime in the future. Because, yeah, the, on the little that we had read about cat people, Val Luton was brought up. And I loved how mm-hmm. they talked about him and how when they brought in brought him into the horror genre is to bring in this, like, Freudian psychoanalytical mm-hmm. theories, like the fear of yeah. castration or penetration. And I'm just sitting there and be like, oh, my goodness, is this where this all began? 
<laughs> yeah, right? Like, and this is the 1940s. His films challenge gender roles, yes. gender norms, gender, gender ideals, sexual imagery, you know. Yeah, we. he has a many. If you look at his list of films, I think mean, there's about eight of them that he produced in like a five-year period. Predominantly female-centric movies. And again, very unique for the time. And they're often very interesting women, interesting characters, different types of women, different types of characters within the film itself. And it's it was very, very refreshing. And I'm going to bring up, like I did in the first episode of this series, a really, really great book because it goes by decade by decade. But the book Subversive Horror Cinema by John Towelson, because again, it's a wonderful book from McFarland Press. And he had a really great section on cat people and the curse of the cat people. Um, and he had talked about Val Luton a bunch and how during this time of America in the 1940s with people going to war and whatnot, that there was like this idealized version of the American woman being promoted and portrayed in the media, media, sorry, by war propaganda films and the media and and all of that. So that is a great segue into the first movie we're going to talk about from the 1940s, which is Cat People. Across the centuries comes this exciting story of a modern girl cursed by an ancient legend. The legend of the cat people. Women whose kiss means death. Whose love turns them into vicious, snarling beasts of prey. Twice I've been followed by something that was not human. Something that attempted to take my life. I believe that was the cat form of Irena. Why should she wish to harm you? Because I'm in love with her husband. It's shut, Belle. Just a minute ago, it was open. Clark. Leave us, Irena. came out in 1942 and it was directed by Jacques Tourner and it shares a lot of elements like I said with film noir as one of the first films that introduces us to the idea of the femme fatale in our protagonist Irina. She is a independent Serbian career woman living alone in New York City and she meets a man who she marries right away but she never consummates her relationship with him because of a fear of uh, old folklore and belief of, from her country of Serbia that whenever women engage in sex with their husbands, they will the inner lion or the inner feline in them will take over and she will devour and eat her husband. And this is what we deal with the, the entirety of the film is this her fear of this inner struggle with her sexuality as we'll come to later um, talking about. But it was a really important film because it brought together horror and film noir, and you can really see it prominently in this film. And I know I brought up film noir a couple of times for people who are not familiar with it. There typically were crime dramas um, mm-hmm. that pulled a lot of lighting. A film noir has to deal with a lot of lighting from the mm-hmm. Impressionist era, and often the crimes in these films are sexually motivated with a femme fatale, and characters are often obsessive by nature and often has to do, and it always has to do around sex. Mm-hmm. And this is where Cat People comes in. Like This is where we get our character of Irina. Is she's not only just dealing with sex, but living identity. in a world identity. Exactly. We've kind of, just like 
kind of coined the 40s as this crisis of identity. Like the horror genre is going through a crisis of identity. Women are going through a crisis of identity. And we see that in a bunch of films, predominantly, again, Val Luton films and definitely with cat people. Oh, yeah. Talking about like I you and I watched this for the first time together. I think it was like last year at some point in, in the pandemic. And I really, really enjoy cat people. I do, too. Like on first watch, I was like, yeah, I like this. And second time around, like just putting on my thinking cap and whatever and <laughs> reading about it, I I liked it a lot. And again, I brought, I had these thoughts of the feral feminine. She has this fascination and fear of cats. And again, as spinsters, we love cats and anything cat related, but... <laughs> Irina talks about how she's soothed by the sounds of the big cats in the zoo because she lives in like a condo, an apartment building right next to the zoo. She likes the the zoo. Um, She likes nighttime. She says the nighttime, it's dark, it's friendly. But she really thinks that there's something evil inside of her, her feral femininity, her sexuality. And again, some people read a lot of this differently and in different ways, but I definitely see that as a crisis of identity. And whether that be heterosexuality, lesbianism, bisexuality, it could be a lot of things. It's There's a lot of different readings in it, but she does have this fear and she feels like, I feel like she goes to visit these cats all the time because she herself is a caged animal. She's seen all these, ca- these caged animals, these beautiful, ferocious, powerful cats, these ca- powerful beings and the folklore of her country, though it's grim, dark and kind of scary, it's powerful, right? Mm-hmm. And she also says this in the movie where she says, whatever is in me is kept contained when I am happy. So she has to remain complicit in her life and relatively submissive to kind of what's going on for fears of going cat-like in quotations or going feral in a sense, you know? Just essentially is her being an independent woman, her standing outside of patriarchal norms that were being placed upon women before and then once again because you know, during the war, women were called up to work on the front to be in support and they were called out of their homes and into the you know, into the workplace. And so this film, like a film about women outwardly challenging the patriarchal control, this film shows the patriarchy trying to standardize, internalize fear in women and complicity, right? That a woman's sexuality needs to be controlled by her husband and that shouldn't she shouldn't have any outstanding agency outside of that. Irina stands outside of this because she is, she is living on her own. She is also a woman. But also another important element of this film is that this is one of the first times that we see the woman as the monster. She is the monster in the patriarchal society and that was recognizing that fear of castration, that real fear that is a threat, that anything that is a threat to male um, phallic potency is female sexuality. It is the opposite of them. And this is where we're seeing women who were used to be victims in the 1940s. A lot of females in a lot of the 30s are women were victims or they were damsels in distress at the hands of the classic monster. But now it's turned on its head. We're now introducing the woman as the monster to realize the fears and potentially traumatize the male spectator. And I think a part of that struggle, like you said about the female, like the independence is there is during this time, like you said of the war, women were struggling between, okay, well, I want to be desired and have desires and be independent, but, you know, what about home and family? Like, that's what I'm supposed to be doing. And you see this wonderful dichotomy and the struggle, this headbutting between Irina and Alice in the movie, because Alice 
is your, she's kind of your ideal American woman. So the butting heads between Alice and Irina, who initially seem like we're going to be friends. Alice is all Oliver's like best friend, co-workers. Everything seems wonderfully, refreshingly platonic until it's not. Yeah. But she is your quintessential American woman of the 1940s. She's hardworking. She's perky. She's patriotic. She's a modern career woman. Irina comes in and has some of those elements, but she's also an immigrant. She speaks a different language. She has an accent. She lives alone. And she's almost like this. She's like, there's this great divide between both of them. Irina, who's struggling to try to fit in. Yeah. Alice already fits in to this mold of the woman. But Irina, who's a little bit, you know, she even like looks different than she's a little bit lighter. The way she talks, the way she moves, again, probably a little bit more cat-like and how she's like a little bit graceful and everything. But they, they do butt heads and the social pressures for both of them. Irina wants to fit in. Alice wants, and then we find out, wants Oliver and be like, hey, I'm not going to be a struggle. I'm not going to be a challenge for you. I love you. We should just do this. You know, they try to make friends and do right by Irina. But in the end, she's demonized and threatened to be institutionalized for her difference, for her being othered, essentially, I would say. I really like that you bring that up about Alice, because one of the things that we were reading about, they talked about how Alice was non-threatening. Irina is threatening. Why is Irina threatening? Well, we, Oliver talks about how he is, he doesn't know, he doesn't understand it, but he is attracted to her against his will. Like he is literally consumed by her. Drawn to her. Yes. Drawn to her warmth. Yes. Yeah. Like he's, you know, he fetishizes her as like very sexually provocative because she's unknowable and untouchable. She's a mystery. And that is like this, any woman that exerts um, any kind of dominance because Irina from the very get-go when we meet her she lives mm-hmm. on her own she t- talks her own mind like she invites mm-hmm. Oliver back up to her place like yeah, you know absolutely. like she makes all yeah. the she makes all the advances and stuff like that but yeah. because she sees herself as as other um and she and he others her as well she can't reconcile that within herself and so mm-hmm. she feels mm-hmm. like her own threat and then dr judd who's trying to cure her of this he's actually trying to counter her her sexual power by enforcing his own by curing yes. her with his own male dominance and mm-hmm. power you know domination at the end he ends up being killed by Irina. yes um yeah. when he tries to do that because she she he she transforms or believed that she's transforms into the cat and ends up killing him but it was really interesting and when you watch this film you get into this other idea of not just like the strength of uh, women's uh, female sexuality and how men fear it but also like Kelly was bringing up the fear of the other and mm-hmm. often when we get fear of the other in these particular types of films is usually queer yes 1940s absolutely Irina doesn't need a man nor does she really desires it but she does because isn't that what's supposed to be part of her role in an American society she should want to marry a man and be yep. a good housewife all but like yeah. Callie said she is different and she struggles and some people like um have talked about in uh, cat people that there is this uh, struggle that she's having maybe with heterosexual uh sex with her yeah. new husband because she married yeah. quite quickly and she was really lonely she doesn't yeah. I think she, if anything she just wanted a platonic friend but because Oliver's like there's no way in which a man and the woman can really just be friends mm-hmm. and we learned this uh, Alice and Oliver mm-hmm. they want to get married but like this may not have been what Irina wanted but because this is what is expected 
she got herself into a sort of relationship that would probably wasn't even for her to begin with. Yeah, there are some some reads this movie that there is like a queer subtext or a lesbian subtext. And in the research, you know, Val Luton didn't intend for that to, to happen, but that's fine. We can read as much as we want into it, but it's interesting right? yeah. to kind of pick apart actions and words and scenes and see kind of what was happening. But for her to be perceived as a monster, she has to be positioned outside of what we perceive to be acceptable societal boundaries, right? We have to pit her against other people in the film. So Alice, Oliver, and eventually, yes, it's definitely Alice because they, like I said, they butt heads because, you know, Arita's trying to assimilate into this culture, which she's never going to fit into anyways, but she's defined as other and that's going to violate societal norms, right? Yeah. And Irina can't function as a normal wife, quote, normal wife, right? So mm-hmm. she's now lost her acceptable role as wife. She's not having sex. They don't even like sleep in the same bed ever, which at that time, again, is very scandalous. But she's now like taken away this like feminine boundary. Like, okay, well, if we're not having sex, then we're not going to have kids. And it's like, it's this whole thing. And to be a monster, you also need to be impure and what's very impure during the 1940s, that's to be gay, unfortunately. And so it's very possible that that is what was happening with Irina. I'll say that in the end of the movie, it's really, really interesting. She's so othered and pushed aside. And then she's threatened to be institutionalized because it's like, well, you either can divorce her, which is frowned upon, divorce, or you can remain married, but then she can be thrown into an asylum and then you can kind of just do whatever you want want, right? But she's threatened to be institutionalized. She's demonized essentially by people who claim to care so much about her. And even at the end, even as they're doing this, it's like, oh, we just have to do what's best for her. We're so worried about Irina. But she's so deferent, whether it be her untamed femininity, her feral femininity, right? That she's very afraid to express because again, it's the 40s. There's that challenge. There's that dichotomy. There's those pressures to be a certain way as a woman and a look a certain way. Is it mental illness? Because we touch on that in the movie as well. Or is it her sexuality? Whether it, you know, whether it's a, she has a queer sexuality, but I don't think she, she would ever be normal in this world. She's never going to be accepted. And some people say this movie, it's like you don't actually ever see her turn into a cat. Yeah, it's very ambiguous and left up to speculation and metaphors because it's all playing with shadows. And again, it's implied. It's a Val Luton film. It's implied. We're not going to see like some graphic transformation like the Wolfman being yeah. like, yep, she's a monster. This is straightforward. <laughs> this is what's going on. Absolutely not. And how I saw this was that like a woman forced into becoming the stereotype or the archetype of a witch, which we've talked about after being labeled for it for so long, you're a witch, you're a witch, you're this, you're a cat person. She firmly believes it like, or worries she's going to become a cat person. This is what's going on in her life. She's forced into her role as a cat person because we don't see her literally turn into a cat person. It's in the shadows. It's symbolic. And as cats, if you know anything about cats, if a cat feels threatened, they will attack you. They will protect them themselves and that's what she does and sadly as what happens with a lot of these films whenever you're othered or different from outside of the patriarchal norm especially in american films you die and with arena she has an unfortunate death both her when she goes to release the panther out from its cage you know she's also like symbolically releasing herself and just giving into her otherness her sexuality she has to die for it though because you cannot let the monster live the monster cannot get out shall we move on to the picture of Dorian Gray from 1945. Your clock thinks it's time for me to go home. Clocks can't help being disagreeable. 
They think it's their duty. It's that cat. I thought I saw its eyes move. Perhaps you did. Lord Henry says it's one of the 73 great gods of Egypt. Doesn't it frighten you? It does a little. Listen to this. Dawn follows dawn and nights grow old. And all the while this curious cat lies crouching on the Chinese mat with eyes of satin rimmed with gold. Get hence, you loathsome mystery. Hideous animal, get hence. You wake in me each bestial sense. You make me what I would not be. You make my creed a barren sham. You wake foul dreams of sensual life. What a strange poem. Who wrote it? Brilliant young Irishman out of Oxford. His name is Oscar Wilde. So the picture of Dorian Gray, this is one of the longer run times, which I was worried about. It's an hour and 50 minutes, but that was fine. I thought the pacing was actually pretty decent for this and it it was okay. But the picture of Dorian Gray is based on a novel by Oscar Wilde. This was my first uh, first time watch for me. Same here. Yeah, cool. I was really excited to look into it because this is seen as like a modern kind of classic in literature, which I've never read. But like, we all know the story. I feel like it's in pop culture. This is This is a cultural reference. Yeah, pretty much all know who Dorian Gray is. And it's a really interesting concept and idea. So this movie was a first time watch and I did really like it. Did you like it? I did like it, yeah. So Lord Lord <laughs> Henry, I loved so much. <laughs> he had me laughing. Everything he said was this philosophy. You know, so much of it I agreed with. And I was yeah, like, yeah. Oh, yeah. I loved him so much. So I had to pull a couple of quotes because he is just, just a chef's kiss gem. Gem of this movie. Yeah, I definitely thought about him. <laughs> I thought about you often whenever he talked. I'm just like... Is this Kelly? (laughs) Yeah, right? Again, yeah, I thought of myself. So that's interesting. So I'll read some of these quotes and see people can understand what I'm like. So a couple of quotes from Lord Henry Wotton. When we're good, we're not always happy. If I could get back to my youth, I'd do anything in the world except get up early, take exercise, or be respectable. Yes, yes, yes. Another one. I apologize for the intelligence of my remarks, Sir Thomas. I'd forgotten that you were a member of Parliament. Uh, Another one. I like persons better than principles and persons with no principles better than anything at all. (laughs) Okay, and one last one. I'm analyzing women at present. The subject is less difficult than I was led to believe. Women represent the triumph of matter over mind, just as men represent the triumph of mind over morals. Mm, Okay. Love, Lord Henry. So... Before we get into the movie, I just had to, I had to do a shout out to Lord Henry. Love oh no, you. for sure! It was a great, <laughs> the great scene at the dinner party where he's spouting it off all his stuff, and the Parliament guy's like getting up really upset. And he's like, "I must leave. I cannot stay for this." And he and he literally calls him out. And he's like, "Come on, you're gonna stay and you're gonna eat that because you're gonna enjoy it. Like you, you know, yeah. like literally calls him out. I was like, we all want to live the good life. Don't mm-hmm. pretend you're all high and mighty and that you're better than me. Yep. You're just like me. Yep. And then guess what? He does stay, and he's like, "I do." Love 
love so-and-so's quail. <laughs> this book is by Oscar Wilde, and the story is depicted about the underground Victorian culture that Oscar Wilde was a part of, and this book was famously used against him to prove his homosexuality. So a little brief history about Oscar Wilde. So Wilde's life echoes that a lot of Dorian Gray. He risked his own reputation and life to bring out what he saw was true and what was beautiful. Oscar Wilde wrote many short stories and poems and plays that reflected the rich and dramatic portrayals of the human condition in the Victorian era. His first and only novel, The Picture of Dorian Gray, was published in American Magazine in 1890 to a storm of critical protest. What he did was he expanded on the story and had it published in a book um, the following year, and it implied very homoerotic themes that were considered very immoral by the Victorians and played a considerable role in his legal trial. And what happened was he had a lover, Lord Alfred Bosey Douglas, who was very familiar with uh, Wilde's novel, Dorian Gray, and so that brought them together. And they were together for about four years until Oscar was later arrested. 1895, after he was arrested, he then later sued his lover's father for libel because the Marquis had him accused of homosexuality. And during the Victorian era, this was like really, really, yeah. really bad. Yeah. So Oscar ended up having to withdraw his case and he was ended up being arrested and he was convicted of gross indecency and sentenced to two years of hard labor. When you read the picture of Dory Grant as well as watch the film, you can, and if you know about Oscar Wilde and um, mm-hmm. what this bilk represented in the Victorian era, you can definitely see a, a lot of uh, queer homoerotic themes throughout the movie. Yeah, so if folks don't know what the picture of Dorian Gray is for whatever reason, put it simply, Dorian Gray is a fancy aristocratic man who would, and a quote from him is, if only it was the picture who was to grow old and I remain young. There's nothing in the world I wouldn't give for that. Yes, I would even give my soul for it. So this stunning portrait is painted of him and as Dorian Gray gives into a lot of his hedonism decadent pleasures of his lifestyle where he's acting very kind of sociopathic, manipulating and taking advantage of others, murders his old friend, Basil. He remains youthful. I think almost like 30 years goes by in the movie, but he remains the same youthful age that he was at the beginning of the movie. But his portrait turns like ugly and deformed and almost demonic and disgusting because that's what he's like internally. So it's kind of like externalizing his internal actual being. And it's really, really interesting. And when I was watching this, I didn't know that much about Oscar Wilde. So this was, yes, very interesting to kind of pair the movie and his and Oscar Wilde's history together. Because when I first watched picture of Dorian Gray. I'm like, is Dorian queer coded? Is this where we're going with this? <laughs> yep. Because in the movie, everyone hates Dorian Gray. They're like, they keep saying, you've done so many awful things and you're doing these things and you're so terrible, but we don't really see anything besides the murder of his friend. But be- up until then, like everybody just keeps stating how much he's hated. But we're like, we don't see anything besides him sometimes going maybe to a bar at the at that quote bad side of the town. Yeah. I was like, does he get drunk? Is he going to see sex work? Is that where he's going to live out his queer life? Because he can't do it in public, he has to do it in shadows, in private spheres. And I was like, well, this is really interesting. Yeah, because like in the Victorian era, you're going to have, there was people going to like opium dens. There were people experimenting all the time, but you had to do it in secret. And the way that Dorian uses his um, influence is he's able to also manipulate other people. And there is one really interesting conversation when he kills his friend Basil and he calls 
calls his um, he mm. calls another lord in to help him get rid of the body and stuff like that, yeah. and he's blackmailing him. We yes. never find out what it is yeah. that this man would rather kill himself to let everyone find out because when yeah. he says, Dorian, you would never do this, he's like, I would. I have the letter here. I will send it to your mother. And he's like, that would literally kill her. And that when that yeah. scene happened, I just thought about that being like, this man is hiding something. And, you know, a lot of queer men during the Victorian era had to hide who they were and yeah. what and what they were doing in yeah. fear of what happened to Oscar Wilde, being jailed, being considered indecent, ruining the reputation of your family. So Dorian yeah. does a lot to maintain his beauty and his wealth. And it's interesting because at the beginning of the film, he resisted Lord Wanton's suggestions. He's like, there's no yeah. way that oh, what yes. you're doing is yeah. right. He's like this, we know we have to yeah. be moral people because the Lord, the Lord's like, why are you giving up your youth and your and everything to help other people? Go live yeah. life, enjoy it. And, <laughs> yeah. and Dorian's like, people aren't how you think they are. This, you know, and we find out that through a test with a young actress who is, happens to be Angela Lansbury at a very young age. And Whoa. she's really, yes, that is, it is murder she wrote. Angela Lansbury was Sybil, the singer. Whoa. But like, because he's questioning human nature and the Lord does know human nature when she fails his test he's like writes her off completely and that's when he decides I'm gonna live my indulgent life literally writes her off writes her a letter and be like I never want to see you again fuck off exactly exactly yeah. she ends up killing herself and then that's and that's where the start of all of Dorian's sins start being placed upon him it's like to yeah. maintain his immortality in his youth his moral degradation will live in that of a painting all his the yeah. all, all the things that our experiences would age us over time just age this picture and one of the things I remember uh, texting you later when we were watching this film is interesting enough the way he sells his soul or the spell that helps this to happen is the cat statue (laughs) you know that they're talking about the beliefs of the magic if you do if you say a wish in front of this cat statue is more likely to do and I thought this was really interesting because literally we're watching cat people and once again feline energy the mysterious Mm -hmm. the unknown the queer the unusual yeah often has to do with cats you know the unknowable the untouchable yeah and both of our protagonists main characters of these two films that we chose being queer coded or at least having some subtext there more so in dorian gray but yeah that's interesting and just another little side note because Dorian Gray is called a dandy in Picture of Dorian Gray. And I was like, that means something. That That is important. So a dandy is a man unduly devoted to style, neatness, and fashion and dress and appearance. And going back to this, Oscar Wilde. He was famous for his flamboyant dandyism, going on lecture tours on the subject of aestheticism, right? Yeah. He wants everything should be a work of art, be a work of art, wear art, right? So that's kind of emblematic of this ideology of being a dandy. So not always a slur or like a, there's not always like negative connotation with yep. it. It was a, a style. It was a, a way to be. Material indulgence, extensive priming, primping and being very proper and just putting a lot of thought into your dress. And, you know, Oscar Wilde comes up in a list of historical figures, also like Lord Byron, Charles Baudelaire, Salvador Dali. So I thought that was also a very interesting kind of trait, like kind of circle back to all of that because they say that in the movie. And again, coming back to how this work could very well be not an autobiography, obviously it's fictional, but such an important piece of literature 
poster for Oscar Wilde and so being a very important film for probably in queer history as well. So mm-hmm. I thought that was really interesting. And also it's a really, I think, an important film as well because it's part of um, this kind of like three trifecta of films that came out in the 1940s. You get Gaslight in 1944 and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde in 1942. They all deal with the same idea of identity and people gaslight, like people literally questioning who you are and doubting yourself and yeah. Yeah. split personalities, you know, like yeah. because definitely with Dorian, there are two sides of him. It's just the other side of him literally lives in a painting. So when he literally kills the painting, it reverts back to eternal youth in the painting and him, the ugly, terrible monster that he really is, is dealing with that uh, that identity and those uh, those cr- crises of faith in, in oneself because that happens in Gaslight when the woman who marries a man who's literally manipulating her to believe that she is crazy and she is mm-hmm. she is not, but he is the one who's doing terrible things behind her back to yeah. maintain yeah. his own moral degradation. So any other films in the 1940s you watched during this month? So I watched three other films, uh, one called Bluebeard, another one, The Corpse Vanishes, and the other one called The Mad Monster. And like I said, a lot of them are really the same. I I did these in like one night. Like by the last movie, I'm just like, beats are all coming together. So yeah, yeah. You're like, I get this. I get it. Yeah. Yeah, very much the same. You've got mad scientists. Like Bluebeard was interesting because it was about um, a serial killer who would kill women and then paint their imagery and paintings. And, you know, there's like this whole kind of like Jack the Ripper type narrative behind it. And then the corpse vanishes is about like a evil scientist. It's Bela Lugosi. And it feels like you're watching Dragon. Dracula, but he's mm. a scientist who is taking out the um, fluid glands out of women's spinal cords and injecting into his wife to maintain her youth and beauty. Mm. But they are foreigners, and they get everyone gets treated really terribly in this film. Oh. And then the mad monster was literally just like dog soldiers in the sense that it was a mad scientist who was trying to prove to the scientific community that he can make people into werewolves and control them. And then, he, and then his idea was to use those those uh, soldiers in the war effort to beat the Nazis. Wow. Whoa. <laughs> Bring that wolf imagery back. People love that in the 40s. Okay. Yeah. So those are my three freedoms from the 40s. Okay. Would you recommend anybody watch any of those? Uh, uh, the mad, you know what? <laughs> That's the mad monster. Monster, I would recommend yeah. just because I think it's really interesting because I remember thinking these films of like werewolves as dog soldiers I've read comic books as like werewolves as these as soldiers so I'm like where did this idea come from so I thought oh, that one was okay. more interesting one but terrible cool. werewolf effects like, <laughs> <laughs> so I watched the body snatcher the devil bat son of Dracula the leopard man I would say the devil bat not remarkable Bella Lugosi short runtime kind of like a classic kind of like monster movie in the sense that he is a scientist and creates these killer bats. It's fine. (laughs) Son of Dracula, again, not very remarkable. This has Lon Chaney coming in as Dracula. He's very mean spirited. He's very mean Dracula, but he's definitely less alluring. So it's fine, but generally unremarkable. The two that I would definitely highly recommend is The Body Snatcher. Okay. Boris Karloff plays a delightful creepy role, delightfully creepy role in this. He's a grave robber that steals bodies for science. There's more like sense of dread than a lot of horror in it. We see that a lot during these these times, Um, but it was great. It was very compelling, incredibly well acted. Yeah, Boris Karloff is like shining stellar light in this movie. Um, So I definitely recommend that. And the other one is The Leopard Man, which is a Val Luton, Jack Tourneau film. 
Okay. Able to watch. So I was really, really excited to finally be able to check out another one of his films. Really, really great. Not a super linear kind of story or narrative, but it's a really great watch. A lot of cat metaphors. Again, there's like captive caged animals that act unnaturally. Another female-centric film. There's a bunch of women in this. Really interesting, really like engaging, wonderful characters. There's a jump scare. It's definitely pretty spooky at times. So excellent. Definitely would recommend that. Excellent. Yeah. So I'd recommend The Leopard Man and The Body Snatcher for 1940s horror. Yes. I feel like 1940s horror, I feel like the genre kind of lost its footing a bit. Yeah. After such a rousing success of the 30s, like that was such a boom and such a big time. That's why people call it the golden age of horror in in quotes, golden age of horror. So I feel like the horror genre kind of lost its footing a little bit. But then we transition to the 1950s and that's where we see things change. And I think for the better. Beware of the blob, it creeps and leaps and glides and slides across the floor. I drew the door and all around the wall, a splotch, a blotch, be careful of the blob. So going into part two here, we're getting into the 1950s. Fear of the other, fear of science, aliens, the unknown, the great beyond. And the two movies we're going to talk about here again is The Creature from the Black Lagoon and The Invasion of the Body Snatchers. But first, again, we need to have our historical cultural context. This is a big, big decade because we are coming off of World War II. We're coming off the 40s. And so much of it is science, but mainly technology. Big, big, big decade for technology. 1950, Albert Einstein warns the world that a nuclear war could lead to mutual destruction. The United States began the development and production of the hydrogen bomb. First hydrogen bomb is successfully detonated by the United States in 1952. Let's see, popular culture in the 1950s can be captured in a few words like the Cold War, baby boomers, Korea, the Red Scare. This is the decade where people people built bomb shelters, had a lot of babies, and the news was filled with what the Reds were going to do or what they were currently doing. Both sides of the, like the US, Russia, that whole area, everybody had this power and technology for a nuclear holocaust. And that is really, really scary. Really, really scary. So that was a big time. So following the end of the Second World War, the economies of the Western world were booming, which led to the start of a consumer-led economy that really seemed to have no bounds. Again, big, bold words, technology. This was a massive year, decade of technology and scary, scary shit. We've got reactors. We've got modems, credit cards, microchips, nuclear power, first power nuclear power station built in 1956. We've got satellites. We've got robots, videotapes in 1956 that started becoming a thing. Going into space, we got lunar probes. Hi Again, the hydrogen bomb. It was a massive, scary time, but also starting the rise of the civil rights movement in 1955 with Rosa Parks being arrested in Alabama after she refuses to give up her bus seat to a white passenger. The 50s were a very important, important, important time. Like Kelly is saying, you got racial segregation deemed unconstitutional um, in the Brown versus Board of Education. You've got the Red Scare, as Kelly brought up, Joseph McCarthy out there. And he's censured. He's being censored by the Senate because he's hunting for communists in the U.S. and no one trusts each other. You've got Kelly is saying like the space race, you know, because not only do we have a Cold War happening, we also have the Americans in the U.S. that start fighting each other up in space. And continuing from the 1940s, revolutions, revolutions in Cuba, Korea 
Korea, Hungary, people want to no longer be under the Western and Eastern nations that have been exerting power over them from. So there's a lot of social unrest happening mm-hmm. during this time, as well as consumerism. And everyone just wants to get over the Depression and World War II, but the world has changed. And when the world changed, horror changes. And horror of this age, which was called the Atomic Era or the Atomic Age, because it was the period of history following the detonation of the first nuclear weapon in the 40s. But during this time, and we see it in the horror movies of this time, cultural anxieties, technology, nuclear warfare, global politics, all of this stuff. And that's why we see so many of the horror films in the 1950s were heavily laced with science, space, invasions. Again, worried about nuclear attacks, scientific advancement, which was scary and strange to people. We don't have the internet to like research stuff. It was, it was just out there. We just hear, they would just hear stuff on the news, ideological opposition, again, hearing scary stuff on the news. So as a result, our horror movies blurred the lines between horror and science fiction, which gave us the rise of sci-fi horror. Yeah. And I have to say, because I thought this was really interesting and ties in Jess and I's Sunday night spooky stories, but UFOs and alien life, Project Blue Book was started in the 1950s. So that was the United States Air Force study of UFO sightings. That began in 1952, indicating the prevalence of societal concerns about visitors from outer space. Invasion of the Body Snatchers, A Thing from Another World, It Came from Outer Space, and The Blob. We have Mutant Monsters. Essentially gone are the days of the misunderstood sympathetic monster of the 30s and a little bit of the 40s. We've got actual, like, gigantic, scary monsters often caused by nuclear energy. (laughs) Mutated monsters. These monsters are aroused by our use of nuclear weapons and it shows us the fear and the consequences (laughs) and disturbing nature of what they can do when we go into areas that we're not supposed to be in. Once again, Mm -hmm. you know, (laughs) Um, another big thing that come up and and this is very heavily prevalent, especially from American films in the 1950s, is the domestic and sociopolitical fears of white men. White supremacist legacy being unintentionally injected into 1950s horror is seen as from in the creature of the Black Lagoon as oppressive social constructs on race and gender. White men are trying to reassert themselves. And these films exemplify oppressive patriarchal white supremacist social structures embedded in the culture that was producing them. You know, these like while these uh, films, these sci-fi horror films were meant for the misfits, the queers, the freaks and the outsiders um, and aligned with like the marginally subversive Often, these monsters are defeated by the white man and the woman and the heteronuclear normative lifestyle. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But this is also uh, an important area of B-movies. They were low budget and they were somewhat yeah. successful. People were able to use special effects and marketing devices to appeal to our younger audience and fill a movie theater. So this is the time of William Castle, who was an American director, producer, screenwriter, and actor who often employed thrilling and creepy promotional gimmicks to get shock factors out of the audience because it was all about selling the film through an interactive experience. Ooh, the immersive experience of going to the theater. Yes. You got to like rebrand, rebuild, just kind of, uh, you know, make things really exciting again. I would have loved to have gone to theater during those. It sounds like it would have been a ride. Like the first screening of Stab when we see it in Scream oh, 2. Yeah, like yeah. what it's like a William Castle. Yeah. Things yeah. flying around. Everybody's running around in costumes. It's like having a great time. Horror can be fun. But like the 1950s seems as though, again, the 40s, a little bit of a bump in the road. But 1950s horror is back to being where it was like in the 20s. Socially relevant. 
it's also a very distinctive time that shows the our first cultural responses to global threats like nuclear warfare and environmental destruction. We're seeing it in metaphors or just literally in 1950s horror, sci-fi horror. Folks, we're here because horror is political. And the 1950s is where we bring it back to that really and truly. It's just such like a decade long social commentary, essentially. Yeah, and then in these films, once again, I, as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, we do not see any people of color, both men and women, as well as a lot of uh, stereotypes are being placed. And also, women's work are being exploited and they're being pushed back to the damsel in distress mode. Mm-hmm. And we'll definitely see that in the films such as uh, Creature from the Black Lagoon and Invasion of Spy uh, Snatchers. Like, I like mm-hmm. these films, but at the same time, too, I get frustrated because I'm just like, just do mm-hmm. something other than screaming. <laughs> Yeah, again, looking back, I'm just like, I don't remember any of these women. There are women in those movies because they're all very unremarkable. That's very true. So should we start part two with our movies with the creature from the Black Lagoon? I think we should. couldn't explain it, but there it was, alive, in the deep, deep waters of the Amazon, a throwback to a creature that had existed a hundred million years ago, immensely strong and destructive. A woman's beauty, the bait that brought it out of its lair. See underwater thrills never photographed before. See titanic underwater battles never dreamed of before in this most terrifying of the science fiction adventures. Audiences at this point had never seen a full-bodied monster costume like that before. Prior, like the Wolfman or Frankenstein's monster, you knew that it was makeup. This is our first, like, this is a costume. It's like a full body thing. And that person's going underwater and doing, it was pretty revolutionary, right? The gills moved when it breathed. It kind of had like cold dead eyes. It was kind of (laughs) creepy. But it was very elaborate and detailed and believable. It was very, very interesting. And it was actually also filmed in 3D. Interesting. And was hugely successful. Gross three million and it had a sequel well under its way with the revenge of the creature and then a third and final film with the creature walks among us all released within the i think the, the same two three year time period because <laughs> oh, yeah. they were they were successful films because it came from this idea of at a dinner at a dinner at orson wells where a man was telling a story about an amphibious man creature that emerged from the amazon once a year and abducted women from a local village so when he so when william aland who was a cinematographer at the time went to become a producer at Universal and he was interested in science fiction, he's like, this is the perfect story. Kind of a blending of King Kong, but it was once again changing it to have scientists and, cr- and going to explore these creatures and I think this is like that interesting start of when scientists become heroes in these mm. films, that they're going out there, they're exploring these creatures and you've got that argument between nature versus nurture in the sense of like, just if we leave him be, we will not, if we just go do our thing and not bother him, he'll leave us alone or, and, you know, yeah. and we have 
have the other characters being like, no, we must hunt him down and kill him because he is a threat. Is he a threat? Man, this is a home invasion story. Uh, yes. I haven't seen the other two movies, but I read about them during our research. I'm like, this sounds awful. And like, as vegans, like, they tear Gilman away from his home and put him in a captive environment for people like Marine World to Marine Land, sorry, here in Canada. So it's like SeaWorld for Americans. Like, ew. Yeah, and in the third movie to eventually make him part more human, they remove yep. his gills and awful. he has to like, yeah, and then he essentially just drowns himself at the end of the film, which I, I know we're jumping ahead because I haven't seen, but it's really tragic. Like, I, the Gill Man, he became, like, a universal monster and classic monster all on his own, but his yeah. story is so tragic. And like you said, an alienated creature whose home is invaded, polluted yep. as well, that scene yep. where she throws a cigarette butt, and I'm like, Ugh. you're a scientist who has respect for this beauty and you just threw a cigarette butt oh my. in the ocean, dumping chemicals in the water, being destructive in the natural environment. Like, these are terrible, terrible yeah. scientists. <laughs> they absolutely are, you know, and it's it comes down to this fear of the unknown, like what's going on, the deep depths, right? What's going on in space, what's going on in below, because yeah. so many, like, this is just one movie, but so many of these, like, monster movies has stuff rising from the depths. We have these massive creatures coming from the water. We've got creatures coming from the sky. Like, everything is out to get us in our minds. Yeah. <laughs> our, our minds here on Earth. But, you know, there's even a quote from the creature from the Black Lagoon that's, that they say, the scientists say, after coming up from diving down into the lagoon, somebody's like, what's it like down there? And they say, it's like another world. Yeah, you're invading somebody's home. Leave Gilman alone. But we would be definitely remiss to talk about the creature from the Black Lagoon and not talk at least briefly about Millicent Patrick. Yes. So she is the woman that designed the Gilman monster mask. She became the first female designer on a monster movie set. And higher-ups in Universal Studios were really interested in her and thought that was really fantastic. Set up a publicity tour for her, which is marketed as the lady who lives with the beast. Like, wanted to promote her. Super happy about this. However, some other dude was not so happy. Makeup artist Bud Westmore became so outraged with her, uh, like, fame and acclaim over creating this Gil Gilman mask that he removed her from the film's credits and later fired her from Universal. So West had received credit for her work for over 50 years. I think there's a book written about her as well. There is a book, yeah, The Lady from the Black Lagoon, and it's about right. her story and stuff like that. And so, yeah, definitely remiss. And that's, once again, going back to the idea of women's work being exploited and just women in general and their roles in horror films and stuff like that also just not being uh, recognized. Like, one of the big yeah. things that I struggled with watching this film is the character of Kay and mm. this weird love triangle between her, um, Mark, and... Oh, David, yeah. This huge... And, like, and how Kay was like, I love... David and I want to be with David but I feel like I owe my career and my advancement to Mark yeah. because he helped me so much and I love that one scene where the other doctor who's like just like a side friend of yeah. all of them he's like you owe him nothing you did yeah. what you needed to do and now you're move on with your life and love and I like that idea and you also the creature series is also kind of continues to inform the false idea of racial science and this whole evolutionary biology where it's grounded in yeah. oppressive ideas of racial purity and white supremacy. Like, Gilman yeah. has been seen to be a character of a primitive black man, and that the character yeah. of Kay is that it's the white female who is being threatened by him, yeah. um, but he's also sympathetic to show the white race's evolutionary potential. 
Like, by them being kind to the gale men, they can show that mm. they can rise above it and they can be really great, but at the same time, too, like How you said... How wonderful. How noble. Exactly. <laughs> they went in there unasked, uninvited, yeah. and, of course, the gale men is, a, is, a, is interested in Kay and attracted to her, but then you have this macho, and I remember when I finished the movie, I'm like, this film is testosterone, testosterone, testosterone. Like, all these guys wanted to do was fight each other all the time. Yeah. If they weren't fighting each other over for Kay, they were fighting Gilman and Mark 100% wanted to wipe him out and kill him, and at the end of the day, David had to make that same decision as well, just to protect his his woman and his way of life. This spoke a little bit of the, the blackness of Gilman in the documentary Horror Noir as well, so folks, check that out. But there is there are those readings, right? And if you, at one point in the movie, there's a quote by one of the quote scientists that says, we didn't come here to fight monsters. Is Gilman a monster though? He is a creature. It could be like an alligator or a crocodile right? or whatever, a hippo, whatever that lives in this lagoon. Oh, who's monstrous? This other, this other yeah. creature, this othered species. And at the time with the civil rights movement happening and in the U.S., racism being so prevalent. Sorry, still in 2022 it is. But yes, he's kind of coded as a, quote, primitive black man. And, you know, the white people are here to fight monsters and get rid of them. And in the end, they kill Gilman, or so we think, and then there's sequels. But yeah, and that's why, like, when you watch the documentary film Noir, they talk about how there is very little people of color in films in the 1950s because they were typically characterized in these creatures, in these monsters. They're no longer on screen themselves. They are depicted as the monster. But of course, it'd be frowned upon to truly just have them played by people of color. They have to be literal monsters. I love the Gill Man. I thought he was great. I remember having scenes watching when he's swimming in the water of like dread. I'd be like, ugh. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, The underwater scenes are great. Yeah, but I think I really, I like the character of Gilman, but this like series is definitely reminiscent of the fear of the other. Something that they're going into territories unknown to them. Feeling entitled. Feel like they're entitled to be there. Why? Because of money and scientific discoveries. (laughs) Quote unquote. Sometimes, you know, scientists like to hide behind those things and do awful, awful things to people, animals, the environment. So we're going to move on to our next 1950s film, and that is The Invasion of the Body Snatchers. But will you tell these fools I'm not crazy? Make them listen to me before it's too late! Listen to me. Please listen. If you don't, if you won't, if you fail to understand, then the same incredible terror that's menacing me will strike at you! from another world, spawned in the light years of space, unleashed to take over the bodies and souls of the people of our planet, bringing a new dimension in terror to the giant super scope screen. It's whatever intelligence or instinct it is that can govern the forming of human flesh and blood out of thin air is fantastically powerful, beyond any comprehension. A cursed, dreadful, malevolent thing was happening to those he loved. It isn't just an ordinary body, is it? I never saw one like it. It looks unused. The sensational star discovery of the view from Poppy's head. And now an undreamed of horror makes her life and love a vortex of fear. Jack! Miles, where do they come from? 
I don't know. Suddenly, while you're asleep, they'll absorb your minds, your memories. I don't want any part of it. You're forgetting something, Miles. What's that? You have no choice. From city to city, an incredible hysterical panic spreads. As the unimaginable becomes real, the impossible becomes true. Stop and listen! Stop and listen to me! Listen! Listen! Listen to me! They're not human! Can't you see? Everyone! They're here already! You're next! This movie, this was a first-time watch for me. This one was a first-time watch for me. I have seen the remake, the one from 1979, and I really like that one. I own it, so I was really super happy to watch this one. Talk about fear from the, uh, the other, the unknown... What's going to happen? We're going to be invaded. The Invasion of the Body Snatchers is a really interesting movie and deserves a whole episode dedicated to it. Probably all of oh these movies God, do, yeah. but this one definitely because it is heavy. This is a heavy movie with themes of the fear of conformity, losing identity, of pod people, where that term came from. Dehumanization. There's so much politics, political allegory in here. There's, you know, so many interpretations of this film. It's very right-winged. It's very left left wing. Like there's so much that you can take away from this movie that again, like I like it really deserves to have its own full episode, but the invasion of the body soundtracks. I really liked this movie. Like I, I really, really did. This is one of those classic ones I had never seen. And I'm so glad that I did get to see it because it was excellent. It's helmed as one of the best B movies ever created. And also the most powerful political allegories of the 1950s. I would rival that with Godzilla when we talk about that. But this was an era when the U.S. feared the spread of communism taking taking over our citizens or our quote, I'll say our homeland. I don't, I'm not American, but you know what? But everybody was so paranoid. It was a, a decade of complete unease and social anxieties of what was going to happen, right? And there's, you know, it's really interesting. Uh, a, do- a quote from one of the doctors in the movie, it says, there's mass neuroses happening. Everyone's worried about what's going on in the world. Absolutely. They absolutely were worried about what was going on in the world at that time. Well, especially in the Americans in the 1950s, they've got McCarthyism. People are literally hunting for communists and literally anything you could do, you could be labeled as a communist and then you're being picked up by some people and being taken for questioning. You had a Hollywood blacklisting, which was really interesting that the screenwriter for this film, he was actually a leftist himself and had been blacklisted in Hollywood due to the McCarthy era. You know, this fear of this a spread of an unknown virus that's causing social upheaval. Like Kelly said, this loss of individuality due to conformity, dehumanization caused by an outsourced force, aliens. Mm-hmm. Like, it is ripe for so much conversation and I loved it. I loved I love the original. The 1970 sorry, the 1970 film is much more sexual in nature and I know mm. that this one had elements of it like the whole yeah. time. I'm like Dr. Bunnell, like come on. Like all you think about is wanting to get with Becky the whole time as like <laughs> the people in your town are slowly changing yeah. and they're yeah. being taken over these pod people. Okay, come on. Dude. <laughs> She's the one that got away. He's just got a banger. Just let them bang. Yeah, right. <laughs> but it's like this this social anxiety of existing 
investing in a time where you have no idea who your friend is, who your neighbor is, who can change. It's all these consequences of consumerism, communism, and this nuclear fear that normalcy is creepy and that we need to fight for our individualism and have our lives be driven by emotion. Fear of conformity is kind of being seen as loss of your soul. And with the consumerism that was happening, the communism, there was nuclear fears. So much like so much more watching of TV and sitting down and like watching the news all the time, listening to the radio. It was just a very spooky, spooky time. And was this based on a novel? This is based on a novel by Jack Finney called The Body Snatchers. Yeah, yeah. so... This was director Don Siegel's first time working with horror and science fiction, but he just thought a film about conformist pandemic due to unstoppable viral evil was really interesting for the time. Great. Yeah. So it was a novel. But so this movie is quote from one of our articles, but this is a movie where the ultimate fear is the futility of standing alone against the mob because the mob has won and nobody cares about fighting back anymore. And that is terrifying. And there is a scene in the movie where our two main protagonists are like the doctor and, and, and Becky, but they're hiding out because they're trying not to become pod people. Everybody, yeah. like the whole town, it's like, it is moving swiftly, but they're hiding out in his doctor's office and they're looking out the window and it looks like everything's normal in town. And then all of a sudden, everybody starts like walking towards the center because, yeah. the, and then you see these trucks pull up with all these pods. But like just that the mass movement, almost like a hive mind yeah. of just like everybody going at the exact same time because because they knew because they are pod people that this was what was happening was terrifying like it literally like stopped me in my tracks I was like this is really scary yeah and these people are hiding out because they don't want to lose themselves they don't want to lose their identity despite what everybody's saying it's like oh it's great you don't even care anymore like I'm I'm enjoying this this is a really good place to be and they're like no no we are going to fight against this we don't want to become pod people so this fear of being taken over invaded the loss of identity the loss of itself you know, the, one of the quotes is, join us. Life will be much simpler and better. Yeah. Would I love to not worry about what's happening in our terrible world all the time? Yes. But there are consequences to, quote, losing your soul and conforming to this mob mentality and losing our autonomy, right? We don't want that. And there's so, that's such like the, I feel like the basis of the terror of this movie. And like you said, that passivity, like throughout the yes. film, it's less about wanting to know why and how how this is happening, but it's yeah. showing the vulnerability of our small towns, ordinary people being prey to insinuating forces and drawing on that human ability for us just to let things happen, to not fight back and not to rustle any feathers, right? To not be yeah. seen like causing trouble. And for me, one of the most jarring scenes of this film, which I thought was going to be the ending, where he's running in the in the streets and he's screaming, you're next, you're next, you're next. And I was like, yeah. oh, okay. Yeah. And then you end up finding out that that's not the ending. They end up showing it later on. And then when we, in our research, finding out that that was supposed to be the ending, mm. but the studio producers didn't like that they wanted to show some sort of happy ending mm. or like some sort of like way of fighting against this and this is a very I felt a very common thread in 1950s um, movies around this time is that yeah you have this external scary force coming in and taking over your people but don't worry we will re- prevail we will fight back against this but it's really important because this film it's not it wasn't the first and it's definitely never gonna be the last film but it was part of a social phenomenon where horror is political <laughs> I will say mm. Mm -hmm. It is prevalent throughout this film, and this film is 
uh, carried up as one of those films that really like drove it home for the audience that horror is not just monsters running around the screen and everyone being afraid it is saying something about the political climate the social climate of the time and what people were feeling at the time it's a big film and we just skimmed barely even skimmed the surface but it is a big big movie any other 1950s films uh you watched so the two that i was able to watch for um American 1950s films was The Blob from 1958. I had never seen, I hadn't seen either of them. Mm. And then The Fiend Without a Face, which is also from 1958. I had tried nice. to not watch two films from the same era because they're both very, <laughs> you know, similar. Yeah. Alien, uh, some sort of alien force coming in yeah. to take over people. I thought Fiend Without a Face was actually really interesting because it was mm. all about what happens when you have a nuclear power plant and the, and the fallout and the longevity and the long-term effects of oh. nuclear radiation on a town mm-hmm. and how they're fighting against both the American and and the Canadian forces to stop this like using nuclear technology to spy on the Russians and what ends up happening is this doctor uses the nuclear technology to create a being a being of consciousness it's literally just a brain with a spinal column that goes around and sucks out other people's brains (laughs) and spinal spinal columns but it's a metaphor for long-term effects of radiation and I know we both watched the blob so yes yes so me and the blob so I wanted to to watch The Blob from 1958. Yes, the original. Because when I was young and too young, so I watched The Blob remake from the 80s. Okay, yeah. And I had nightmares for years. And it took me almost 20 years to revisit the, the remake because I was wow. so scared. I had so many nightmares of it growing up. And I love the remake. It's like, it's so fun. It's so gory. It's still scary to me. But it has great practical effects. So I like recommend it. I definitely want to see it, yeah. It's, it's fantastic fantastic and just like gross and so I I felt a little bit of that dread (laughs) of watching the original blob but it's so fun it has a theme song it was great and then I watched the color version I think they were I was probably all of them colored did you watch the colored version I watched it in black and white okay okay so I watched the colored version whatever was available to me I think it was on Crave or Tubi or something yeah there's the effects were really great for the blob like really really cool very very standout probably pretty great for for its time I love that like the teenagers aren't believed at all. They go to the class I and be know. like, this subs, this thing is happening. They're like, whatever, teenagers, what do you know? This is just a scam. This is just a trick. You're like, okay. Yeah, like generational conflict. Like no yeah. one wants to believe the teenagers. And uh, yeah. Eventually the town bands together to fight the blob. I love that the teens are like more than willing to help and go get a bunch of fire extinguishers. And like, I love that again. Teens banding together to fight evil. I loved that. The blob. Yeah, it was a great watch. I had a good time with it. It like abruptly ends as so. Many of these movies do with oh, a yes. helicopter bringing the blob to the Arctic and then this big question mark. I cringed <laughs> so much when the last scene when the guy was like, "As long as the Arctic doesn't unthaw, we should be fine." And I'm just like, "This is 2022," and we're like, "Oh god, global I warming." Know. He did not as account long for as it stays warming. cold. I'm like, <laughs> spoiler alert. <laughs> So that's going to be the next pandemic. The next yeah. is going to be the blob coming after us because of climate change, folks. Uh, the polar ice caps are melting because of global warming. <laughs> and once again, the blob is a creature from out of space. And a yep. meteorite lands in a wood somewhere. Some man goes, starts poking it with oh. a stick. Yep. <laughs> and it starts absorbing people. That Touching was shit. I, yep. Yeah. Just I was stop. like, just 
don't poke things that you're not unfor- that you're unfamiliar with. Like, and the only other movie that I watched was The Hitchhiker. Oh, okay, which was co-written, directed by a woman, Ida Lupino. So she actually became one of the first uh, women to direct movies in Hollywood. So technically, it's not a horror movie. It's more of a crime thriller. It's a film noir, and we know that '40s was the birth of film noir. But we see a lot of this, and also like dabbles of this in the '50s that tackle horror, horror adjacent. But it was fantastic. Fantastic. I found it really scary and suspenseful. The use of shadows in this movie, especially in like the beginning scenes with the hitchhiker in the car. It's basically there's a hitchhiker that gets picked up because, yeah, you just pick up hitchhikers in the 50s. We don't care. People aren't. Don't be afraid. <laughs> don't do that now. But he gets picked up and then gets his people to like drive them to places and event- kills them, of course. Yeah. Of um, course. And carries on his way. So it open pretty, pretty much opens with the hitchhiker killing people. So we and then there's like a lot of news uh, uh, news reports, radio reports about it, uh, about this hitchhiker killing people. Anyways, it gets picked up by these two men. It's like a male, very male-centric film as well. Just really interesting to picks up the hitchhiker. Then the rest of the movie is their journey of him. Like he really wants, the hitchhiker really wants to get to a certain space so he can like flee. Cops are on his trail. And that whole dynamic throughout it is, it's just very suspenseful. And it was excellent. So oh, good. that is a big recommendation for me is watch Ida Lupino's The Hitchhiker. And if you want to have a good time, watch The Blob. I would definitely agree with that with The Blob. And you know what? Also too, Fiend Without a Face was really interesting. It's on the Criterion channel. I loved it. I especially love these little brains that as they became more transparent, like flying around, like I literally would love to see a remake of that film. So now we're going to get into part three. In our first Origins of Horror, we left out international horror. So this time we're going to throw out there kind of by the 40s and 50s, what was going on with international horror? What was the rest of the world up to? Not just North America, not just America. Rest of the world does horror movies too. So where was the world? Jess, do you have some, do you got some tips and tricks for us? What was the world up to? The world was going through the same events in the 1950s for everyone else. Um, but with international horror, what was really coming to life was, and we'll talk about this uh, very shortly, but uh, Japan blew everyone out of the water with this film Gojira, which brings about the subgenre of the kaiju subgenre, which was very prominent after in the 1950s. We're also going to see uh, in the UK, Hammer Studios begins launching their own cinematic monster universe with The Curse mm-hmm. of Frankenstein and Horror and Dracula. And this is when we get to see Christopher Lee becoming a mm-hmm. household name. Mm-hmm. And bloody, violent, gory, and sexuality is mm-hmm. part of this new Hammer. universal yeah. monsters because of Britain's lax censorship standards. So mm-hmm. horror was really expanding in the genre. And I know, Kelly, you found a good list of some films um, that came out in the 30s and 40s. I got a couple of things. Like, Mexico had been putting things out since the 30s, like the odd horror film. La Llorona had many adaptations. That story of La Llorona. Vampire from Germany in the 1930s. The, the Gollum from the 1930s, which is a France and Czechoslovakian uh, horror film. Dead of Night in the UK, 1945. India, 1949, had Mah- Mahal, which is apparently a horror film. France had La Diabolique. We see the first appearance of Mario Bava, obviously Italian. 
Italian descent with I Vampiri. But yeah, the UK was out there. Mexico's out there. Some German. So it was spread out. But like by the 1940s and 50s, other countries were releasing some films. Were they as of note? I don't know. A lot of these are hard to find. But I mean, they're not making as much splashes as, yeah, like Japan, the US. Canada doesn't come onto the scene until technically the 60s with the mask. So we don't do anything yet, sadly. But there was some stuff. There was sprinklings, international horror. And that's just like a handful of things. Other countries were, they kind of jumped, uh, jumped on board a little bit later on. biggest films, international films to come out was 1954's Gojira or Godzilla for the English speaking fans. So the Toho company, which produced the Godzilla films, has released 29 live action films and three animated films over the last 60 years. Like they are, if you know anything about Godzilla films and those kaiju (laughs) movies, there's a shit ton of them and they are a blast to watch. Just in general, I recommend people watching any of those movies because they're so fun the goofier the better like give me the weird googly eye monsters any day i'm such a big fan godzilla 1954 this is the film like jess said that started an entire kaiju subgenre, but also explores the fears of advancing technology during this atomic age obviously and more specifically the shared trauma in japan of being on the receiving end of two folks two atomic bombs during world World War II. Godzilla, the movie and creature, is both creatively and narratively the product of atomic and nuclear weapons. We see the kaiju as a very lighthearted character that saves Japan, but the original Godzilla, the original Gojira, it comes from the origins of pacifist anti-nuclear movement, which is a reflection of, Kelly was saying, Japan's fear of nuclear annihilation. During their occupation, Japan couldn't make any films or talk about anything that had to do with the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. They couldn't really process that trauma because they're being occupied by the Americans. But once the Americans left, films were able to come out to deal with the atomic bombings. And Gojira represents mankind's corruption of the natural world through nuclear testing and weapons. He was this prehistoric, he or she was a prehistoric creature living at the bottom of the ocean, just literally minding his own business. But because we perverted the environment by bombing and putting nuclear nuclear testing in 
other people's countries too, like happening on the coast of Japan by the Americans. He's coming, he comes out to seek to destroy the symbols of civilization in all forms of technology because of what is made of him and how it also destroys a whole other country. So like, while it's fun to watch the Godzilla movies and to really enjoy them, like I enjoy all the kaiju films as well. This one really hits at home because it's really saying something about this shared trauma of this nation and how they're trying to process it after the war. It's an incredible movie. It is. Like, I love it on a, like, fun monster movie destroying shit because I love that. Um, yeah. But it is heavy. It has the most, like, iconic theme. Like, give me a theme that is more well-known and iconic than the Godzilla theme. I love this. Like, I love this movie. Out of all the movies that we watched this month and, like, had to for the podcast that we talked about today, this one I love. I love Godzilla. It is heavy. It is poignant. It's entertaining to watch. But there's even like little snippets that I took out watching it this time around. Like, you're right. They couldn't explicitly say what was happening or what they were afraid of. But people were afraid. There's a woman on the train in Godzilla when things like just start happening in the beginning of the movie where she says she talks about how she barely escaped the Nagasaki bombing and now she has to deal with this. She was almost like she was perturbed, but maybe like inconvenienced. But also it's like that was real. She's like, I literally barely survived and now I have to deal with this. So their fears continue on and it still continues on. This fear of nuclear war, what's going to happen next? Like if you think about like when Godzilla starts kind of getting into the city and everything, fires are raging, people are running, buildings are collapsing. Can you imagine being the people if this really happened, how that would have been so reminiscent of the bombs and the trauma that everybody would have to be reliving while Godzilla is destroying their islands and destroying their cities. Like I've, I've got chills. Like it's, it's a terrifying movie and it's a terrifying thought. It's a highly politically charged movie. It really, really is. And you know, the Japanese folks, they were worried what threat was going to be happening next. Like that woman's like, yeah, I barely survived this. What's now? What's next? What's going to happen? How are we to survive this? How are we going to survive what's going to happen next? And this was also very, very interesting to me. So there's the one scientist there that is the biologist. Sorry, he's a zoologist. He wants to study Godzilla. He's so upset. Yes, he wants to study him and learn from him whereas everybody's like, we gotta kill it. We've gotta kill this. Mm -hmm. And he's like, no, we have to study it. We need to know how he survives radiation. How did he resist radiation? Scientists want to know in case of future bombings. Again, Godzilla's like this H-bomb still hanging over their heads. And it is terrifying. Terrifying. Again, I've got chills right now because it was so like hearing these words from this movie, this dialogue is just Mm. it's chilling, bone chilling. Especially because that scientist at the end when they do defeat Godzilla, he says, we've done it now, but we don't know what nuclear testing can continue to do and how he may just come back or another one like him may just come back. And it happens in Godzilla Raids again. Another uh, Gojira type creature it comes back and I watched that. I watched the sequel to that in the same doctor comes back and he's like I told you guys we keep doing nuclear testing Godzilla is going to come back we need to find a new way another really important element to this film is the other fear of that cold war metaphor that mentality that 
if we create technology to combat other technologies, how is it going to be used to harm people? Like they figured out how they use the nuclear bomb and nuclear energy. And what did they do? They made a bomb out of it and they bombed another country. So when Mm -hmm. we get Dr. Cesara, who has his oxygen destroyer, this new technology that could literally kill Godzilla, but also kill other countries. He's like, I have this technology and it's so dangerous that I need to not do it. But because of what is happening and the devastation, he's like, okay, fine, we will do this. We will use it once and I will destroy it and kill myself because of that ever prevalent fear in the Cold War that scientists being kidnapped by other nations and other countries and and using that technology to weaponize it against other countries and to cause so much devastation. And yeah, like I've seen this film three times. I love it every time I watch it. I love the sequel and I've seen a whole bunch of all the different ones. I tried to watch the 1956 American version of this film and I turned it off after 20 minutes because I was offended. I was mm-hmm. like... Mm-hmm. They, oh, it's terrible. Yeah. They, yeah, they literally take out all the important social messaging and stuff like that because in the time, at the time, like when this brought over to American audiences, you couldn't blame the U.S. for what they did oh, no. to Japan. They would never do that. Didn't want to make them feel bad, so they insert an American hero into the Gojira uh, franchise. So if anyone's ever going to watch any of the Gojira f- series, Godzilla series, yeah. just stay away from the 1956 film. It's just not, yeah. a, not, it's not a good film. No, it's, it ain't good. And I did like a little extra little side note of research that I was going to bring up, but now I'm just going to bring up like a little like paragraph of it because you brought that up. And it's so fascinating that that scientist actually is empathetic and actually thinks about what might happen with this technology that he has created. He's like, I feel like at first it was like, this is an interesting idea. Oh, this is what can happen. No, this is actually bad. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What a fucked up world we live in that we create these things to use it against others. Like that's just what's happening. And this is where we live. And like that blows my mind all the time that that's like, the world that we live in and that was fears of people truly then it's always like this looming fear for all of us but like especially then because it literally had just happened it's terrifying so you bring up the differences between the Japanese version I'll say that's more of like the American version quote unquote but the differences between American and Japanese concepts of the other Japan sees it as a way to maintain both the self and the other they keep it in the culture by immersing the self with into the other whereas America Americans ex Externalize the other from the self and use them as a contrast to each other. So the Americans will see Godzilla and they have this like Americanized version, more of a comedy, right? But if you watch Godzilla, that is not a fucking funny movie. It is not a comedy. It is terrifying. So Americans watch Godzilla and see it as a comedy, especially if they see the one that was more geared towards them that was dumbed down. Japanese found power in Godzilla, the movie. They found it relevant. They left the theater in tears, and impacted them so much because it was so relevant for their times, for like it was topical, it was important. But Americans will push away their guilt and they don't confront it head on, whereas Japan will embrace, accept, and understand their trauma and use art to help heal through it, process and heal through it. Americans will not. <sighs> Heavy movie. Okay. Yeah. Finally, what film do you think or films do you think are the most important from the 1940s and 50s? What do you think is the most influential? What do you think are is like is or are essential watches? I think for myself, when I think back to this episode and what we watch, essential watches would definitely be cat people. I think people interested in any kind of othering, queer horror, invasion of the body snatchers, Gojira, 100%, and The Blob. I, I would want to say The Creature from the Black Lagoon only because I think it's important for people to 
watch to understand how black people were being left at a cinema in the 1950s. Mm-hmm. But yeah, those I feel like for myself are like the most influential of those of those generations. Great. How about yourself? My number one from the 40s, 50s, the most important, the most influential, the most powerful, it's going to be Godzilla. Yeah. Absolutely. If you watch nothing else from the 40s and 50s, you watch Godzilla, you watch Gojira, because that is yeah. an incredible film. It's powerful. It's everything you'd want out of a horror movie, really, truly. Godzilla, essential watch. And now we've arrived at Spencer's final thoughts, this time over a nice warm cup of tea provided by our sponsor, Brutalities. Since we're spinsters, we obviously love tea. One of our favorite things is to curl up with a movie on a cold, rainy day. Or with a good book. Absolutely. With a mug of delicious, hot tea. Brutalities is a company that we discovered at a horror convention and fell in love with. They have a variety of tea blends from black, white, and more, but what stood out to us was not just how yummy they were, but their spooky and metal-inspired names. With Screamsicle and Children of the Candy Corn, we thought Brutalities were a perfect match made in... I am obsessed with tiramisu. And I'm currently obsessed with Banana Bell. So go to Brutalities.com to grab some for yourself with listener code SPINSTER15 to get 15% off your purchase. For our Canadian fans, please contact them directly before ordering for shipping quotes. So now that we have our tea, let's put these spirits to rest. All right, so my final thoughts around this month of exploring films from the 1940s and 50s have been like really interesting because I knew of some elements here and there, but this was filling a gap for me. And I really enjoyed it because I was able to explore this gap and understand more of what horror was trying to do, particularly in the 40s when it's trying to find its identity as we're going through wars, depression, you know, people are trying to find who they find out who they are. Life is changing because the world is changing and that's what's happening. And in the 50s, it just amps up because for me, I am a student of history and I'm a student of the Cold War. So my background and just I'm super interested in the Cold War and how that influenced um, technology, but also influenced uh, society and culture. And it's so important how it's being portrayed in these films, in these horror films in the 1950s. And like Kelly was saying, when we end with Gojira talking about the impact of nuclear testing and the impact of war on other nations and how this hurts people and traumatized and I love the fact that we're going to see all these international films that come out further in the horror genre to address these very issues so for me this was a really I really enjoyed this month and getting to explore these films more and understand them more and do research behind them because as we did the research behind these films we find out these more interesting tidbits along the way and about a lot of these films were some people's first horror films and I'll say it again and I'll probably say it till the day I die horror is political inherently everything that we see in these films makes us feel uncomfortable and makes you think like I would love to sit down and watch any of these films and just have a good time but I can't help but think about what the roles of women are in these films or the men or what they're representing and what culture is behind them so for me I really enjoyed this month I really think it's very important for people to understand more of the origins of horror and exploring these films and making their you know, and knowing the history and understanding what it's trying to represent for people at the end of the day across the world. Well, we've done it again, folks. We proved to you listeners that horror is political, rife with commentary while maintaining its sense of escapism and entertainment. And I am glad for it. The 40s and 50s, is there, it's full of gems, and I highly recommend folks delving into them as much as you can. And cat people, 
Shout out to cat people. Irina was threatened by the patriarchy, but never was contained, never was tamed, yet, unfortunately, still punished for her sexuality. We are still discussing these themes in 2022 through film and in reality. We are still fighting for reproductive rights. We are still fighting for our identities and for our bodily autonomy. We're also still afraid of the other. Restricting trans rights? Restricting education and healthcare for trans children? Teenagers? Rebuilding walls? All while the government and cops continue to protect the status quo. And I say protect in quotations pretty loosely if you look at the school shooting that happened literally the other day in the US. The 1950s. The atomic age of horror was an important time for the genre, and I wish I had more time to explore all the weird and wonderful movies it has to offer. But I really feel like horror found its home again in the 1950s. The blending of relevant social commentary and social anxieties that would continue to be expanded on as we move into the 1960s and beyond. And I can't wait to get there. Our world can be absolutely terrifying, and I am so happy that I have horror to come home to. And that ends our second episode of our Origins of Horror series discussing horror films from the 1940s and 50s, and how world anxieties and political influences on these films would continue to be a basis of the horror genre for decades. We want to thank Dance with the Dead for our intro and outro music, Robies, and of course, all you listeners. We want to remind you to follow us on our website at spinstersofhorror.com. It's brand new! Go check how sexy it is! <laughs> um, also on our social media, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, just search for Spinsters of Horror. We also have a Facebook group called the Spinsters of Horror Coven. We also have a Letterboxd account to search for horror spinsters or spinsters of horror. We have a YouTube channel where we throw up some special live presentations. We also video record all of our minisodes. So just look for spinsters of horror and follow us. Subscribe to us on there. As well, please rate and review us on iTunes, Spotify, literally anywhere you can. Please drop us a rating. Please drop us a review. Send us your thoughts. Please visit TeePublic to purchase our t-shirts and donate to our Spinsters cause. You can find that donation button on our website. Next month is June, and you know what that means. It's Pride Month! Yeah! (laughs) And I'm very happy to say that we will be covering drag queen horror and discussing the fantastically bloody indie film Death Drop Gorgeous for the podcast. And we're also going to be doing another charity screening for Pride. And we'll be doing a charity screening of Death Drop Gorgeous. So we'll be doing over on Twitch. But stay tuned for further details for that to come over the next few weeks. But until then, folks, remember, the future of fear is female.